The National Institutes of Health is launching its Home Test to Treat pilot program, which will provide free COVID-19 health services, like at-home rapid tests and telehealth sessions, in select communities. The program seeks to address some of the major issues that have hindered uptake of the antiviral pills, that many people don't seek out PCR testing to confirm their COVID infections, and if they do, may not receive their results in time to begin taking the medicines when they're most effective. Berks County, Pennsylvania, will be the first community to try out the program later this month. This is Pulse Check. I'm Lauren Gardner. On Thursday, the South Carolina Supreme Court struck down the state's six-week abortion ban, ruling the privacy rights in the state constitution protect abortion access. The decision allows abortion to remain legal in the state until 20 weeks of pregnancy, and is a setback for Republican lawmakers who hope to ban abortion after conception. It's also the first state high court to identify a state-level constitutional right to abortion since the fall of Roe v. Wade. Similar challenges are pending in 10 other states. According to a new Harris Poll survey, 10% of women have never been screened for cervical cancer, and the majority of the women said they didn't know how often they should be screened. About 4,000 women die in the U.S. from cervical cancer each year, even though it is largely preventable by testing and vaccination against human papillomavirus, the cancer's leading cause. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, nearly a quarter of women were past due for a cervical cancer screening, and testing fell after its onset, according to an American Cancer Society analysis. The National Cancer Institute will soon launch a self-sample screening trial for HPV in collaboration with private companies. And, according to the latest data from HHS's Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration Annual Survey, one in three people had mental illness or substance use disorder in 2021. Daniel Payne is here with the top lines from the report. I think the message from the 2021 data that was just released is a lot of people in the United States have some form of mental illness or a substance use disorder. One in three Americans have one or the other. The big message here is that it's a big problem. It's a huge healthcare need across the country. How many adults have reported having a mental illness compared to how many are reporting substance use disorder? Sure. So mental illness is more common than substance use disorder. It's about one in four adults in the U.S. And particularly among younger adults, it's more common, one in three between ages 18 to 25 are reporting Mm -hmm. any mental illness. About 16% of the adult population is reporting substance use disorder, and that's according to the DSM-5, so how a clinician would diagnose that specific disorder. Mm -hmm. Another note on that, most people who have a substance use disorder were not receiving treatment during the year of the survey. Uh, 94% of people were not getting treatment, according to the statistics. And so this was 2021. And, you know, we can think back to what that year was like. It was, you know, started still with a lot of lockdowns, eased up a little bit at the end of the year, but it was still, you know, COVID was still... A very big issue, Omicron came on the scene around Thanksgiving of that year. 
So how does 2021, the results from that year, compared to years past? Is this an uptick? What exactly do the results say about how mental illness and substance use disorder have grown or, or not in the U.S.? These numbers are higher than earlier years, but there's a big caveat here in that officials said that we can't compare these numbers exactly apples to apples because the methodology changed because of the pandemic. Uh, the way that they were surveying people changed because of COVID-19. So mm-hmm. even though these numbers are higher than earlier years, it's really difficult to draw a particular trend line. But if you look over the last decade up to 2019, when numbers are more comparable, you see a growing trend of mental illness being reported, particularly among young people. So It's pretty similar to what you see here, even if the data isn't exactly comparable to earlier years. On the politics side of this, mental health and substance use disorder have really emerged in the last year, year plus, as bipartisan issues, at least on Capitol Hill. Um, And there's been some movement there legislatively. How do you think the results of the survey might influence the political landscape on these issues as we look ahead into the next Congress, provided, of course, that the House can elect a speaker sometime soon. (laughs) Certainly. Um, I think that this is another strong data point in what lawmakers and policymakers have been noticing over recent years, which is there's a huge mental health problem in the United States that needs to be addressed. And across every state, across every congressional district, This is an issue that's affecting constituents and people are taking notice. So in the omnibus, you saw a pretty decent chunk of legislation to address mental health and substance use disorders. And lawmakers on the Hill are talking about doing more this year, given it is a divided Congress. It it may be more difficult to do that, but there's more attention being paid to it as they realize that a third of America is dealing with one of these issues, according to the survey. All right. Well, thank you so much, Daniel, for walking through the results with us. Appreciate it. Sure. Great to talk, Lauren. Clinical trials are key to developing new treatments and medical devices, but they have a lot of problems with recruitment and diversity, which can undermine their results. Ben Leonard caught up with Amy Abernathy, the former number two at the FDA, who is now president of Verily's clinical research business. Verily is a subsidiary of Google parent company Alphabet, and hopes to be part of the solution in modernizing clinical trials. Hello. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Absolutely, absolutely. Big picture, you know, what is sort of the state of clinical trials right now and what needs to change? Well, we learned in COVID that our discovery engines were really working very, very fast, but clinical trials still are circa 1995. So we also learned in COVID that we have the opportunity to shift how we do clinical trials and that will indeed speed up the process. So I see us moving towards clinical trials that include data from all types. So data that already exists in the system like EHR and claims data. I see clinical trials leveraging new types of data such as sensors in a watch to help you understand mobility. And I see clinical trials having new designs. I think we're going to see more study designs. We're going to see study designs that also leverage formalized clinical trials followed by longitudinal follow-up with lightweight registries. And so there'll be many new study designs in the future. So modernizing clinical trials is, you know, obviously no small task. You know, what do you see as some of the biggest obstacles to doing that right now? 
lots of obstacles to modernize clinical trials, but, but most of which I see as surmountable. First of all, if we're going to leverage all available data, we're going to pull together formalized clinical trials data with data that exists from real world systems like the electronic health record. Mm -hmm. We've got to solve for the data quality mismatches that happen when you bring those two types of data together. Another critical thing to solve is we need to make clinical trials low burden for participants. It shouldn't get in the way of the business of living. And also, honestly, we need to make sure that clinical trials fit in the lives of people of all backgrounds so that clinical trials are representative of real populations. Another critical problem to solve is clinical trials have got to be more efficient and less costly. So you mentioned kind of the recruiting issue. What are some ways that, you know, Verily is working on that? And, you know, is there any sort of data that you can leverage to kind of pair patients better with clinical trials? You know, recruitment is one of the hardest things in clinical trials. Oftentimes, about a third of the study budget goes to recruitment because it's hard to find the right participant at the right moment in his or her life to then match um, to the clinical trial. So at Verily, we've recognize that this is a multifaceted problem. You can't just have one way of trying to solve it. So yes, we think about the requirements of the clinical trial, so the eligibility criteria, and how do you match that to what you know about the features of individual people who may be potentially appropriate for that trial, so clinical trials matching. But we do a number of other things too. We include digital marketing and campaigns to reach people where they are. We also leverage call centers and white glove service to sort of help that last mile of matching patients into the trial. A lot of times people need a phone call to sort of say, here's what you do next. Taking a step back at Verily, what do you think are the biggest obstacles to success? So at Verily, you know, the biggest obstacles to success, or if I turn that around, Ben, it's what do I think we have to nail at Verily in order to make sure that we accelerate clinical trials? One of them is participant uh, burden and a focus on patient centricity. I, I, you know, think about how digital and software and um, user experience works for us in other parts of our lives. We need to make sure that we bring the best of software design, UX, and uh, essentially the ability to fit into workflow and life workflow in a way that's completely patient-centric. So that's one thing. Another one is longitudinality. The clinical trials of the future, they're not going to be one week or two weeks long. I think many clinical trials are going to Expect that we follow people for long periods of time. If that's true, again, it needs to be easy to participate. We need to leverage all available data and be very efficient. And we also need to focus on data quality. That's a key element of what clinical trials are going to look like in the future and we're going to need to solve. So, so how do people stay in trials for long periods of time? And I guess another initiative from the Biden administration, ARPA-H, the Biomedical Research Agency, ambitious goals to create a cure. What do you think about that? And what do you think it needs to do to be able to succeed? As they look to really novel solutions in clinical trials, evidence generation, and understanding um, the, the discoveries uh, that they hope to push forward, I think they're going to need to really think about doing the things we've been talking about on this podcast, leveraging data in new ways, including all available data, prospectively understanding and following um, products across time. 
um, making sure that we consent people to participate in efficient ways and, and that that's fully transparent. I think these are some of the things that, that are going to need to be um, kind of in their skill set um, as they think about what this looks like going forward. Well, cool. Thanks so much for coming on. It was a great conversation. Thanks, Ben. It was great to talk to you. And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Annie Reese is our producer. Our healthcare team editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tyne, Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of audio at Politico. I'm Lauren Gardner. Subscribe and follow Pulse Check for a new episode every day. And subscribe to our newsletters where you can read this reporting. Pulse, Future Pulse, and Prescription Pulse. Thanks for listening.